0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast.
1: Let's talk about stocks here with Jess Menton. She joins us in the Interactive Broker Studio. She is our equities reporter. Folks, if you read anything on Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Terminal, on the stock market and you're like wow this is a really good article it probably has Jess Menton's name on it so naturally we had to bring her in just- and not working from home
2: no yeah. Paul good,
1: in office. good on you Paul <laughs> would be so proud um Paul loves it when people come in and join in the studio uh just tomorrow or sorry not tomorrow what is it it's Friday Monday Monday will be the start of earning season um there's a lot to digest we just heard uh, a couple of days weeks ago I don't know it feels recent Jamie Diamond with his 44 page letter talking to us about the state of the economy we've also a few days, few days ago but since then um or I think somewhere in there we also had the yield curve invert which of course we also know is bad for banks there's a lot to digest there's a lot of cases to be made for both upside and downside when it comes to the stock market walk us through what we should be watching in the earnings space going into next week
2: this is definitely going to be a crucial quarter, especially for the banks, because it's going to set the tone for the next few quarters, especially because when you're looking at banks and how they're so tied to the economy and the consumer, especially when it comes to their those banks that have their arms with consumer loans to show really how the broader economy is doing, but then also the health of the consumer, and especially when we're seeing inflation at decades high. And especially like you mentioned, Jamie Dimon speaking earlier this week, obviously he had his letter to annual letter to shareholders and he had some bright spots about how he thinks the economy is going to continue to boom especially coming out of the pandemic and when it comes to the strength of the consumer but still noted about certain risks out there when it comes to the federal reserve and potentially raising rates even faster than what analysts Mm, have been anticipating which is
0: key for bankers right
2: it is and especially because in theory that should help banks as long as the
0: curve steepening. Yes, as
2: long as the curve is steepening. And so that's the tricky part, especially when you're looking at banks right now. And if you're looking at the KBW, which measures the broader big lenders, it's down about 10 percent this year, underperforming the broader market with the S&P down about 6 percent. And so that's key, especially because they should be performing better with rates rising. But we do have that caveat of the parts of the yield curve, especially when you're looking at the two tens, which has historically preceded recessions. Um, that happening there, but there was something key that Bank of America did point out in a note recently, and they were taking a look at how, while bank earnings growth was about 80% correlated with the 10 two-year spread from the 1992 to, to basically March 2000, that correlation actually dropped to just 17% following the tech bubble. So that could be something interesting as far as just maybe that correlation isn't quite as strong anymore as it was once, say, with the 1990s, and maybe potentially potentially. potentially banks could move on from some of these headwinds. But again, it'll be key to see what they're going to say next week.
0: I wonder. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say about loan demand and especially the outlook for that in a rising rate environment. Right. Because I know that a lot of banks have already told us loan demand is coming back. But as we see mortgage rates approach five percent, And we hear someone like Jan Hatzius say the Fed is probably going to raise to or might raise to 4% plus. You got to wonder how uh, much demand consumers are going to be are going to have for loans.
2: Exactly. And we're already starting to see signs where certain home sellers are trying to potentially drop some of their prices when they're trying to negotiate because of what we've seen recently with mortgage rates going up. And obviously, we know very well during the pandemic, the bidding wars that have been going on, and especially with the low amount of inventory. And that was a problem even well before the pandemic.
0: I just want to say I got my house for below (laughs) ask. Below ask. Wow. February 25th, I closed, locked in a rate at 3.25%. I'm pretty stoked.
2: That's been a that's, roller coaster yeah. to follow, just as a, <laughs> as a viewer
1: and observer of Matt's house journey. Anyways, continue, Jess.
2: Yeah, no, I have uh, plenty of friends right now that are are they're still struggling with that. It uh, wasn't easy. It wasn't, yeah. And I have friends back home in Texas where they thought that, it, hey, it's going to be cheaper to live here, and they're still having issues trying to find homes. So that's going to be key, especially like yeah. you were mentioning with the banks. But another thing, too, is when we're looking at they have so many different arms, and and when you're looking at specifically, say their trading arms. I mean, uh, Bloomberg had a story earlier that took a look at Goldman and how markets are. Um basically they're implying that there's a low risk of a recession when you're seeing what goldman strategists are talking about but also goldman traders making about 300 million on inflation in the first quarter so that'll be another key looking beyond not just what's happening with loan growth but looking at their trading arms and seeing what's happening there and the right. types of bets they're making specifically on inflation
0: right uh it's interesting jan Hatsius had predicted i think march 11th that we had a 35% chance of recession in the next year. And I thought that felt really low at the time. Now, um, an MLive survey came out yesterday showing that out of 525 participants, almost half expect a recession next year. So I think the probability is rising. And next time we have you on, let's talk about what happens to stocks when you're looking at an imminent recession, because I know um, they don't sell off right away, just like they don't sell off right away after the yield curve, just Menton from Bloomberg News. Thanks very much for joining us. Laura, there's a very real possibility. I keep hearing that Marine Le Pen um, or some ultra right yeah. candidate could win the presidential election in France this weekend. Fill us in.
3: Absolutely, Matt. Well, the polls are converging and they're basically neck and neck. Now, the two main candidates, Le Pen and Macron, and essentially This runoff is going to take place in two weeks. And the main crisis facing the French economy is the cost of living. Le Pen, she wants to back away from NATO. She's the nationalist candidate, while Macron, he represents more of the cosmopolitan citizens of France. And Le Pen, interestingly, look, she wants French law to have priority over EU law. She wants to reduce the retirement age for those that started working earlier. Macron, he wants to raise the retirement age. That's not really going to sit well with the electorate here and he wants to cut inheritance tax but it's heating up and it's the first round taking place on sunday
0: hang on he wants to reduce inheritance tax he
3: does a very unfrench policy you might say
0: it's just in general you never hear about people cutting taxes that's that's great Go France.
1: (laughs) Uh, Matt's about to go move to France if that happens. Um, Well, I have
0: nothing to inherit. Actually, I just, you know what? I will say, um, and my opinion doesn't matter at all, but I feel like inheritance tax is one of the best ones because that's like a great equalizer, right? Everybody starts on the same uh, level playing field if you take away the wealth of those who are just born with it. Income tax is the worst because you work to earn that money and then the government takes it away. Um, But I could be wrong. Well,
3: Matt, on income tax, that's what Le Pen is coming across as quite popular right now. She's tackling the cost of living crisis. And one of her policies is is that if you're under 30, you won't pay any income tax.
1: Interesting. Laura, talk to us a little bit about the market side of this, because we've seen French bonds not do so great. We've seen French stocks uh, also lag uh, this week. And it really is clear that it isn't just the weather that's a little bit gloomy in Paris right now. Talk to us a little bit about the impact in terms of, let's say, if if, uh, Le Pen is actually elected? Well,
3: we're already seeing a nervousness in markets because of that sale risk. The CAC 40 down almost 2% over the last three days. Markets would have to adjust. There would probably be an initial sell-off, but would it lead to any long-term economic damage? Probably not. If there's a Macron win, it's a continuation of the modus operandi in what is Europe's second biggest economy.
1: What's interesting here to me is also the impact that Ukraine has on France, right? Because we hear constantly about Germany and the impact that uh, the entire grass supply has on Germany specifically. But France is quite exposed as well. Can you just illustrate, especially for our American audience, um, a.k.a. me, who isn't that uh, well read in terms of France, walk us through the economic hit right now that France is taking off the back of the war in Ukraine.
3: Food price inflation is huge, right? It was just today we saw world food prices reaching another record, according to the UN Food Agency. Food is a symbol of French culture. And right now, across all the French newspapers, you're seeing the phrase le pouvoir de chat, basically the cost of living. So, But what the war in Ukraine is doing to the French economy? It is making businesses and individuals thinking about their purchasing power and where that stands. And that is what is seen as a priority over the war in Ukraine, because unless the purchasing power issue can be resolved, then the French believe the war in Ukraine will not be either.
0: Wow, they uh, um, I, I guess maybe they don't feel the sense of responsibility. I assume that they would, especially after um, World War II, not to appease um, someone like Vladimir Putin, but. Do they see it very differently, Macron and Le Pen? Um, do they both approach Putin in different ways? Because Macron's been talking to the Russian leader quite a lot, but I thought Le Pen he had been, been had been friendly with Putin as in the past.
3: Well, they both want to extend an olive branch in a way. Le Pen has a history of wanting to collaborate with Russia, even she's on the far right side, but see that as more important than ignoring. The former Soviet Union, for Macron, the reason why he extended a hand to Russia, the French have different intelligence to the United States and the United Kingdom. It's one of the reasons why he's dropping in the polls. He's now coming, coming across as weak rather than statesman-like. So if anything, we're not in Russia right now, probably more embarrassing for Macron than it is for Le Pen.
1: Laura, talk to us a little bit about the read-through into the American side of it, the American economy. Why should folks here care about what's going on in France?
3: Well, the United States is France's seventh largest largest trading partner. And if we see Macron re-elected, you know, that positive relationship will continue while Biden is president. That said, if we do see a far-right candidate such as Le Pen elected in two weeks' time, if Biden is not elected in the next U.S. presidential election, it's kind of circumstantial, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean we will see a deterioration in the relationship. They're both developed economies, the U.S. the most powerful economy in the world, France, the second largest economy in Europe. So that relationship will remain in place. It's just the semantics may change.
0: Laura, thanks very much. Laura Wright joining us out of Paris on the French election. That's Sunday. And Thank goodness Laura Wright's inside. At least she sounds much warmer and drier than Francine Lacroix this morning. She's sitting on a rooftop in blustery Paris.
1: Carolyn Conan as well. Covered
0: pleasing. in cold rain. Uh, just watching her made me want to take a, a hot bath. In any case, um, thanks very much, Laura Wright. Hans Olsen joins us right now. He's the chief investment officer at Fiduciary Trust Company. Hans, what do you think about, um, it seems like the market must be taking SOMA, because there's so many risks, there's so many headwinds. Um, geopolitical, I mean, tension is such an understatement. Why are we looking at a VIX of only 21? Yeah, there's it, hi, Matt. It, it does seem as if the market
4: is kind of whistling past the graveyard when you look at, look at all that's going on, and especially if you compare the VIX to the move, right? So the, the bond market seems to be what, saying one thing, and the equity market uh, exactly the opposite. Um, and I, and I, I, th- I think investors have become somewhat complacent around this. It would not surprise me at all to see us retest uh, our prior lows of uh, earlier in the year uh, as it becomes apparent that the, the Federal Reserve is deadly serious about getting a grip on inflation.
1: Talk to us a little bit about uh, the signals here, because I'm, I'm confused about, I think you were 100% spot on when you're saying that the VIX and the move are on two different pages. So I'm confused then, which market has it right? Is it the bond market or is it the stock market?
4: I think the bond market has it right this time. I think the stock market, people have become so inured to um, you know, these adverse events um, and that you, know, you buy the dip always buy the dip and it's been a strategy that has worked really well over the last 10 years but what i'm not sure that it is it reflects is is this changing regime we have a real inflation problem and and if anybody who is is trying to to wrap their head around just how deep these issues are uh, augustin karstens who uh is the head of the bank for international settlement a couple of nights ago in geneva gave a great speech that is that's been posted on their website about just just how difficult these these issues are and how likely they're going to last longer and be more difficult to resolve. So I don't think the equity market has um, uh, engaged with this issue the way it needs to.
0: Is is it a different world, Hans? You know I've been talking to you for at least. Ten or fifteen years, and I'm mm. and I'm grateful for your insight. Um, As am I. Is is, is it to you. <laughs> is it different now that you know post kind of uh, pandemic, post meme stock craziness, um, in this era of inflation, everyone's looking at commodities. Is it a different world?
4: You know, Matt, if if you look at uh, the performance of the S&P 500, if you, if you break it down, sort of that that first level down. Uh, and you look at how energy has performed this year, the conclusion that you would make is that energy is the new tech, right? Uh, Because it's certainly acting like that. Um, And I do think that there um, there is a new regime unfolding. So if we start to get a real price of money, the, um, you know, the pricing models that one uses, like these really long-duration equities, high expectations, low profits, they start to act very differently when you have a price of money that starts to emerge that is um, you know, above the rate of inflation. So you come back to sort of the uh, first principles of investing again, I think.
0: All right, Hans, great to get your take. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hans Olsen there. He's the chief investment officer at Fiduciary Trust. Right now, let's get to Mary Ellen Iskandarian. She joins us, the CEO and president of Women's World Banking, um, to talk to us about uh, there's nothing micro about a billion women. Um, That's her new book, Making Finance Work for Women. How far have we come, Mary Ellen? I'm sure not far enough, but it seems to me, at least in my 20-year career, we've made some serious strides.
5: Um, well, thank you very much for for having me on on the program. Um, I guess you know it really depends on on which way you're you're looking. Certainly, in terms of women as bankers and women in decision making roles in both um, you know private sector banks as well as regulatory agencies, absolutely we've made progress, and you know good that we have because the data is really quite, quite clear that if you have even just one woman on the board of a regulatory agency, that entire financial system is tends to show more stability, tends to have less risk-taking in it. You saw coming out of the financial crisis, um, banks that had women on their boards and senior management did come through that crisis in better, healthier, more solvent shape than those that did not. But in terms of women and the women that my organization, Women's World Banking, serves and that I wrote about in the book, you know, there's just been this very persistent, dogged gender gap between the access to finance that women um, have and what men have. And it's just been its a really frustrating number that never seems to budge. In the emerging markets, there's this sort of steady 9% gap that even as men gain, gain greater access through digital technology, women just seem to continue to lag behind.
0: So, okay. So there's there two separate things here, right? So we're talking about, on the one hand, uh, I, I think of women in finance then I think uh, automatically of the women who are running Wall Street. And but there's also um, the the narrative, I think, 10 or 15 years ago when this whole micro um, financing started was that we need to get money into the hands of women. And, the, and you're saying especially there, there's still uh, um, th- there's still a lag in terms of um, what we what we can do and what we've done right and
5: and you know and you you put it well because that really was the kind of pun if you will of the of the title of my book that that while you know women basically built the microfinance industry you know you had anywhere from you know 93 to 99% repayment terms um repayment uh, rates on Uh, Loans that were made to women by microfinance institutions that we did some work both here at Women's World Banking and then some professors at NYU looked at those microfinance institutions that had more than I think it was 60% of their client base as women consistently outperformed those that had men, but you know why why were women just relegated to sort of small unsecured loans if the only thing your bank ever gave you was a small loan you'd need plenty more products you'd need a savings account you'd need to be able to make affordable convenient payments you'd need insurance to make sure that all your great achievements weren't uh, weren't lost with a sudden illness or some other you know uh, natural disaster to your home so it, it, it really takes more than just that micro loan as good as that was for women and as well as what poor women performed when they received those loans, it really takes a much broader range of financial services to be truly, you know, what we call included, financially included.
1: Mary Ellen, uh, take a pause really quickly i just want to mention a quick headline that is crossing the bloomberg terminal the former goldman banker we were just talking to june grasso um, about yes roger ang is found guilty in the 1mdb mm. fraud scheme so we will of course g- bring you uh the latest on that if there are any more headlines but just uh letting our audience know that he is indeed found guilty of bribery and money laundering in that one 1M- MDB case uh, mary ellen coming back to you here uh, I-, I think it's fascinating to talk about women in this industry let's talk about what else can be done what is your recommendation from here quickly
5: well well that's that's sort of the other part of my book it's not like i'm asking you know great charitable efforts to be made there's some really compelling data that's showing there's money to be made when financial service Mm. providers really explore products that meet women's needs you know you've got a billion women who are completely unserved but then maybe another close to a billion that don't have that full access to products and services we estimate you know you could have 50 billion dollars more premium income every single year yep um if life insurance were made available to women on the same basis
0: that it's made to and, men. and, the, and so that's the key when you can when you us. can make money off it mary ellen iskandarian iskandarian thank you so much for joining us women's world banking thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.